Welcome to Weird Studies, an arts and philosophy podcast with hosts Phil Ford and J.F. Martell. For more episodes or to support the podcast, go to weirdstudies.com. Welcome to Weird Studies, this is JF. Earlier this month, Phil and I attended the Diverse Intelligences Summer Institute, DC for short, at the University of St. Andrews in Scotland. DC is a three-week academic event where established and emerging researchers in the social sciences, the natural sciences, and the humanities come together to explore the phenomenon of intelligence, broadly construed, human and non, in a truly interdisciplinary environment. Long-time listeners will recall that we attended DC last year and released a live show we recorded at the end of the conference. That was episode 131. To our surprise and relief, we were invited back this year, and this time I like to think we turned and faced the strange, as David Bowie put it. Phil gave a talk on unidentified anomalous phenomena, and I talked about how we're living in a fairy tale. Like, literally, in a fairy tale. While those talks went unrecorded, sadly, we did capture our capstone dialogue with sociologist, physicist, and DC co-founder Jacob Foster of UCLA. And this, dear listeners, is what we bring to you today, raw and uncut. Jacob is a devoted Weird Studies listener who, in the years since we met him, has become a dear friend and an intellectual comrade. Inspired by a recent talk he gave at the Santa Fe Institute, link in the show notes, we settled on the reality of the possible as our topic. It was an exhilarating conversation that I hope you will enjoy. Our live show at DC was the first of two live recordings we have the pleasure of doing this summer. The second will take place on Thursday, July 27th at Shannon Taggart's Science of Things Spiritual Symposium in Lilydale, New York. Again, some of you will recall a fantastic conversation we had with Shannon back in episode 113, Framing the Invisible. Shannon is a photographer who has spent years documenting the culture and practice of spiritualism. Her book Seance, link in the show notes, is bar none my favorite photography book of all time, and I speak for Phil and myself when I say that we couldn't be more delighted to have this opportunity to exchange with Shannon and other brilliant explorers of the outer reaches next week in Lilydale, the holy city of the spiritualist movement. For details on the schedule and to purchase tickets, go to shannontaggart.com events. I'd be remiss if I didn't add that Chicago's Illuminated Brew Works, hands down the weirdest of breweries after the beer gardens of Valhalla, is bringing a fresh batch of their Weird Studies IPA for the after party. So there will be beer, there will be weird, and since we're there, there'll be at least two beards. Okay, on with episode 151. The Real and the Possible, with Jacob G. Foster. Enjoy the show. This is very exciting. It's very exciting because you are all here and we're here and it's been a great week. It's also exciting because we finally get to do a show with Jacob Foster. We've been waiting to do this for a long time. In fact, we started talking about this almost a year ago, and we've been, you know, exploring different 
possible themes or subjects we could, you know, discuss in an episode of, of our show. Um, and uh, the, the original idea um, was to talk about a concept from the work of William Irwin Thompson, who is a cultural historian who went rogue at some point and started to do his own thing. And he wrote a wonderful book called The Time Falling Bodies Take to Light. And in this book, which is kind of an exploration of um, uh, the origins of consciousness in the Paleolithic, it's, 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 it does many things, this book. I'm not going to try to summarize it, but in this book, he uh, develops this concept that he calls uh, Wissenskunst, which is uh, a German word, which means something like the play of, no uh, the play of knowledge. Or the and art of knowledge would be yeah, another way Kunst, of rendering it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Play or art of knowledge. And you would oppose that to the, the, the established term in German, uh, Wissenschaft, which is basically science broadly construed. It's not limited to the hard sciences. It's basically the, the science in, in the sense of um, the accumulation uh, and, and, um, of knowledge. Yeah. Musicology yeah. is known as uh, Musikwissenschaft, um, Wissenschaft. Wissenschaft yeah. in German. So, um, and what is this idea of Wissenskunst that... Uh, Thompson develops. Well, um, in this book, one of the things he does in the introduction is that he notices how prophetic art has been in the 21st and 20th century. He wrote the book came out in the early 80s. How, how prophetic it has been insofar as it has anticipated certain developments in technology and society. Uh, and at this point, this almost almost sounds like a platitude in 2023, <laughs> considering that all of these novelties that are now like becoming a part of our everyday lives were being described in, as far back as the 1930s by certain science fiction authors and that sort of thing. So there's a weird kind of play of knowledge going on in art, although you don't know it's knowledge yet because it's just the play of art. So, um, but what he was trying to do in this book is he's trying to really develop an idea of how... Uh, art and science could do something similar, could be, could be somehow hybridized or combined into doing something very special that um, would uh, retrieve certain forms of knowing that were lost to us in the, in the modern era. You know, forms of knowing that might have been available, let's say, to in ancient Greece or in indigenous cultures and societies, that sort of thing. But in the European epistem post-1500, these forms of these ways of knowing were lost. So uh, I'm going to read a quick, just a short passage from, from his book. Um, so he starts by saying, as fiction and music are coming closer to reorganizing knowledge, here it's partially a reference to how, for example, science fiction anticipated changes in society, scholarship is becoming closer to art. Our, our culture is changing, and so the genres of literature and history are changing as well. He was a historian. In an agricultural warrior society, the genre is the epic, an Iliad. In an, in an industrial bourgeois society, the genre is the novel, a Mall Flanders. In our electronic, cybernetic society, the genre is Wissenskunst, the play of knowledge in a world of serious data processors. The scholarly fictions of Jorge Luis Borges or the reviews of non-existent books by Stanislav Lem are examples of new art forms of a society in which humanity lives not innocently in nature, nor confidently in cities, but apocalyptically in a civilization cracking up to the universe. At such a moment as this, the novelist becomes a prophet, the composer a magician, 
and the historian Abard, a voice recalling ancient identities. So, um, not to toot our own horn, but, <laughs> <laughs> but on Weird Studies, one of the things we try to do is to kind of like answer this clarion call by allowing ourselves to play with knowledge as opposed to um, holding ourselves up to the standards of any particular field. We allow ourselves to, you know, sing false notes, you know, as Henry yeah. Miller said, I will sing badly, but I'll sing. Yeah. Uh, and we allow ourselves to explore like, the philosophy implicit in a, in a film, uh, even a Hollywood movie, or the art, the fiction implicit in a philosophy, for example. So we like to like mix signals like that and see what, what happens. Uh, as, we, as we've been saying since the beginning, it's all for amusement only, but as it turns out, sometimes we find interesting things. So this is just by way of introducing, not just, that was the original thing we wanted to discuss with, with Jacob, because Jacob has his own ideas about this stuff, but it's also a kind of introduction to what we're trying to do on Weird Studies. Mm. Um, so, uh, yeah, so that I wanted to just throw that out there to, as a methodological note. And, yeah. one, and one thing I would add um, is also in, this, in that exact spirit of um, playing around open to disruption and unexpected angles, uh, we welcome that from you as well. So if you wish to ask a question as we go along, if something occurs to you that you would like to put in, we might not be able to get to it instantly, but when we get to the end of the very long sentences that come out of our mouth, we will. Yeah, absolutely. Don't hesitate. We, we want to hear what you think and what you're feeling. Um, so, Jacob, what do you make of... Uh, what, what are your thoughts on Wissenskunst? I think, you know, the... First thing that springs to mind immediately is an autobiographical reflection, which is to contemplate the role that uh, fiction in particular, but art more generally has played for me as a stimulus to various scientific ideas. And, you know, I would say that like many of my strong passions and interests as a uh, as a scientist, as a sociologist, and as a scholar of collective intelligence and of mind have come from things I've uh, read and uh, not things that I've read within the sort of scientific, within the scientific literature. And, you know, it makes me think of this point that we discussed uh, in DC a couple of days ago, actually in response to this wonderful talk that Phil gave on uh, UAPs about the way in which uh, part of what characterizes the Wissenschaft orientation is this idea of a discipline in a sense of there are ways we do things, there are things we take for granted, there are questions that we don't ask. And I think one of the challenges that we face now, not just in the academy, but in the world more broadly, is how to crack open those disciplines um, insofar as on the one hand, uh, like the, the beautiful metaphor that you all uh, developed in the context of thinking about magic of the sort of 
the gun barrel that challenges the, uh, that channels the projective force and sort of shoots things in particular directions. I think disciplines have great virtue in channeling our mental energies in particular currents, but they have failures insofar as it can be very difficult to channel or to aim at things that are outside of that particular direction and that particular construal. And so, you know, I, one of the things I try to encourage my own students to do, one of the things we try to encourage people to do at DC, and I think this is the lesson of Wissenskunst and the kind of move that breaks it out of the, the prison of Wissenschaft is precisely this sort of openness and play that allows you to crack the shell open and let those energies fly in new directions and net, let new currents come in, and I think that's a practice. I mean, one can develop and cultivate a disposition to doing that and have this sort of systole, diastole of like intaking new things and then redirecting in, in new, uh, new, uh, new channels. This reminds me of improvisation. Mm. So there's an essay by uh, uh, now late composer Frederick Zhevsky, an important American composer of the post-war avant-garde, called Little Bangs, A Nihilist Theory of Improvisation. And he makes a point about um, improvisation. What he's trying to do is to make a distinction between improvisation and composition, which is a fundamental kind of musical, that's one of the big musicological questions, what's the difference between composition and improvisation. Zhevsky um, starts off by saying, well, it's not about freedom, because he's like, it's possible to do an improvisation in a totally rote spirit, just letting your fingers do what they always do, um, just like the way you drive home without giving a second thought, whereas you can play a composition that's thoroughly notated in a very free way, in a totally spontaneous way. So it's not about some forms of action having more freedom than others. But he is interested in improvisation as a kind of mental disposition. Mm. It's something that happens in the head. And particularly, he's very interested in the idea that it's an arena in which things that are nonsensical or absurd, uncaused, uh, mistaken, mm. um, can have an autonomous um, Value. They, they have a claim, a, a right to exist. I'm going to read a little bit from this. Um, Improvisation is a game that the mind plays with itself, in which an idea is allowed to enter the playing field in order to be kicked around in pleasing patterns for a moment before being substituted by another idea. The first idea is unintentional, an error, a wrong note, a fumble in which the ball is momentarily lost, a momentary surfacing of an unconscious impulse normally kept under cover. The play to which it is subjected is the graceful recovery of the fumbled ball, a second wrong note that makes the first one seem right, the justification for allowing the idea to be expressed in the first place. The activity of the improviser resembles that of the magician, who draws the attention of the observer to one hand while he performs the magic with the other. What the magician does in space, the improviser does in time. Hmm. And so he's talking about things that happen all the time in improvisation. Um, there's a line of Brian Eno's, of, you know who Brian Eno is? Great music composer, producer, just general man about arts. Um, he created a, a, a divination deck of a sort for create, creative people called the Oblique Strategies. And one of the cards that you can draw if you need a bit of inspiration for a project you're working on 
is uh, honor thy mistake as a hidden intention. And this happens all the time in improvisation where you play a wrong note. Like say I'm playing jazz and I'm working in a G7 chord and I play something from entirely outside the chord and intend it, A flat, I'm not working with A flat, but I played it. And the thing is that an improvisation happens in the irreversible flow of time. So now what? So now you do a second action that retrospectively makes sense of your mistake and all of a sudden, you're down a whole new path of association. You're doing something new. Yeah. The new comes into being through mistake, through absurdity. Mm. Yeah. And the aleatory nature of whatever comes next is exactly the right thing. Like an example from, so we're talking about performance art, music. You think about um, one recent example, something we've been discussing recently is uh, Twin Peaks. Has anybody here watched the series Twin Peaks? Yeah. All right, cool. Um, so Twin Peaks, as we know, um, a big part of the plot, if one can call it that, uh, revolves around the character of Bob, who is this, uh, this villainous, demonic entity um, who has a human form, at least. We see him as a human, played by a human actor, but his ontological status is unclear. Um, he's like Schrodinger's psycho. Yeah. Uh, and. Uh, and in the, in the, the way that it happened was that David Lynch did not have this character, nor did Mark Frost, his co-writer, did not have this character in mind when they were even starting to film the show. What happened was that a set carpenter happened to be, he, he just hid away because they were doing a, they were shooting. So he hid in the corner just to be out of the, to be off, off the camera. And, but he ended up in the shot. And when David Lynch saw this, he's like, who's this guy in the back of this, this shot here? And they're like, oh, that's, uh, you that's know. Frank. That's Frank. Yeah, Frank Silva, that's Frank Silva. He's a, and then he's like, I, I, he's in the show. Like, it's now a part of the show. And not only did he include that shot, that, that error, and saw it as his, in, his uh, hidden intention, but he, it became a central component of the mythos of Twin Peaks. So. Artists are used to this, I think. It's kind of part of the journey of being an artist is that the weirdest mistakes, coincidences, completely aleatory elements that pop into a process suddenly become central. And the, the, the feeling you get as you create art in this, in this mode, as you encounter such things, is that there is a kind of implicit or emergent intelligence in the artwork itself. It's something Carl Jung talks about in his wonderful essay on mm. the relationship of analytical psychology to poetry, where he, uh, he actually says that the artwork, phenomenologically, you know, he's not making any claims to, he's not, um, he's not being a, a, a physicist here, a biologist, but he's, as a psychologist, he says, I have to say that the art, work of art is a kind of organism that uses the artist to come into the world, because the logic of the artwork, which is unknown until the artwork is complete, um, is implicit from the beginning. Uh, it's almost like a dream, right? You have a dream, and then suddenly your dream makes sense, has a kind of weird, implicit aesthetics to it, a strange kind of artfulness to it, and who, whose artfulness is this, you know? Um, and uh, so, so 
that I think that improvisation yeah. relies on this weird, emergent, synchronistic, spontaneous intelligence that emerges. Well, I, I, I will say, as speaking as a physicist and complex system researcher, I do think it is an organism so in a very I. in a very <laughs> I just didn't want li- no 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 <laughs> in a very literal sense. Um, you know, insofar as we think about life in the sense that folks like Chris Kempis and David Krakauer at SFI have developed that focuses on the way in which life forms, you know, use information and matter energy to sort of perpetuate or reproduce themselves. What I find so interesting about both, you know, the the Bob example and this beautiful passage about improvisation, and I think something that, uh, you know, folks in the in the sort of world, the world of technic, the Schaft world as opposed to the Kunst world, can take over from that um, that artistic mentality is the importance of a kind of hermeneutics of charity or generosity, not just to others, but to oneself. In the sense that when you make the mistake, you can orient to that in two ways. One is critically suspiciously, like, oh shit, why did I hit that false note? Why did I screw this thing up? Why did I say something I didn't mean to say? Or you can be generous to it and say, well, let's follow that train where it goes. And I, I had a very, um, vivid example of this when I was preparing um, a talk that I was extremely nervous about uh, for this uh, Santa Fe Institute workshop on artificial intelligence and the barrier of meaning, where, you know, I mean, there were very big people in the field, both big philosophers, big AI researchers, little old me, um, you know, and I wanted to give a cool talk, an interesting talk. I was struggling to figure out how to put everything together. And then I would say essentially as a joke, I decided to like use as my opening figure the Flammarion, I can never remember if it's technically an etching or engraving, and I know people care a lot about which one it is, but you know, the guy sticking his head through, you know, into the broader world of the, you know, for yeah, the pleroma. And then suddenly that essentially like joke where I was like, oh look, here's a picture of a guy breaking through some barrier into some broader world crystallized, I mean, it was exactly as you said, JF, it was like this, you know, autonomous complex in Jung's language, just like started proliferating and the entire talk, the arc of the talk, the main point, a whole bunch of ideas just fell into place from following this line that had opened up through essentially a like aleatory event. Right, yeah. right. right. And it's, 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 I mean, the history of science is replete with examples of scientists suddenly having these visionary insights, right? Um, like so. the double helix of the of the D, of DNA being glimpsed think, in a dream, I think? I think LSD was involved in that one. If I'm oh, not, really? I'm not sure if it's correct. Uh, well, it, the, the structure of benzene was glimpsed in a dream ah, by Kekulé. Okay. Actually, there's an yeah, etching Kekulé of it very example. close yeah. by here. Yeah. Um, I don't know about DNA. Uh, that's right. There's also the table of elements, I think. Mm. Somebody. Anyways, there are lots of examples of scientists getting like strokes of insight. Um, and why shouldn't there be? But it does raise questions about what it is that scientists are doing or what it is that they're investigating. What is nature? You know, Spinoza had, uh, this is predates Spinoza, but uh, natura naturans, which is the naturing nature, nature as it creates nature. And then 
uh, nature as it's already made. And it seems like science often, we, mm. we modern people think of, of nature as a kind of ready-made or finished thing that we're observing from the outside. Of course, we know that's not the case, that there's a process behind nature. And the, it seems to me that the, the further we go, the harder it becomes to extricate mind, intelligence, meaning, value from that process that's creating, generating nature. Um, not that it's reducible to merely human values or something, but that what we call value, what we call meaning is already kind of out there, right? Uh, and, and it's something that we're discovering, not just projecting onto nature. Um, have, so, I, have I gone a step too no, far? No, 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 no. So, so if, <laughs> if I can offer an example of an essay that was very important to my thinking, um, Robert Dykraff, who uh, is uh, now the Minister of Culture and Education and Science in the Netherlands, was a very distinguished theoretical physicist, mathematical physicist, and was the director of the Institute for Advanced Study. Also, incidentally, someone who had very serious artistic training, thought about being an artist, went to art school for a while, and then went back to being a physicist. Um, he wrote this essay uh, called The End of Physics? Question mark, that was about these sort of debates about well, you know, we didn't find evidence of supersymmetry at the Large Hadron Collider. Is physics over now that we maybe can't probe down to the scales to do string theory experimentally the way people want, et cetera? And he said, look, like the move that the 21st century has taken is shifting from studying nature as it is to studying nature as it can become, or as he puts it, studying, moving from what is to what could be. And he points to the way in which in synthetic biology, in artificial intelligence and um, computer science, in physics, where they're now, you know, having these sort of things that initially it existed as ideas, like what would physics work like if it, things were in two dimensions and it had these weird properties and whatever, you can now build what Frank Wilczek calls micro worlds, like these very special material systems that are like little universes that obey totally different laws of physics than the one our universe obeys, but which we could imagine. And that essay, it's a very short essay, was just like this firework went off in my brain when I read it, because I think that points both to a possibility that some disciplines, like my own discipline of sociology, have not fully fulfilled, in other words, this studying what could be, but also the role of human life and life more generally in the unfolding of the universe, which is the realization of things that could be. So I agree completely with what you said. Well, it seems like possibility is perhaps a word that we might use in this context, and a, a word, uh, the possible, mm. um, that has been coming up increasingly in our conversations. I know that this is a, a, a subject of interest to you, JF. Um, there are perhaps other, I mean, other ways maybe of getting at the same, uh, like neighborhood, same ballpark, um, the new, how do, or moving from what is uh, from what is to what might be, innovation, uh, find, finding innovation, um, improvisation is perhaps we might think of that as a. I mean, normally we think of improvisation as a means to an end, as a technique of of creating music. But what if we think of improvisation simply as uh, something that inheres in every 
process mm. that we intend. For example, this sentence that's coming out of my <laughs> sentence or my mouth right now. Or but you were reading that, there's a passage in that Jensky essay where uh, he says, you know, it doesn't matter if you have a plan. I don't remember how he says it. I, I only know my interpretation. Can you read that little sentence? Yeah. Uh, yes, I will find it. Um, Jevsky is a highly intellectual guy, um, but also loved the possibility that anything can happen at any time for any reason at all. And he says this repeatedly in this essay, <laughs> that as somebody who was a very self-controlled, uh, very uh, deliberative person, also he always maintained a space uh, for uh, uncaused, uh, capricious, whimsical events. And he talks about improvisation uh, as a tissue of such things that nevertheless are meaningful. In an improvisation, an event happens for no reason. It just happens. It seems therefore unrelated to what happened before. The irrelevant event is like a question, what? That triggers a response from the improviser. The reply, this is a second event, perhaps equally irrelevant, or perhaps, on the contrary, flowing logically from the first. Was that it? Close. It's around there. It's around there. It's <laughs> but it's, these... The point was, no, I love, I think it's important to read that bit, because there's a moment where he says, basically, his, the, what, he, what he's saying, essentially, is that even if you go in, even having a plan is an improvisation. Yes. <laughs> oh, like, yeah. you improvise. Okay, I'm like, I'm going to do this with a plan. You're already improvising. There's, there's a, a way in which the new or the possible is simply the space we're constantly inhabiting. I mean, for all we know, in 10 seconds, something unthinkable will happen and change our lives. This is just... This is the situation we're in all the time. Uh, there, I, there, I remember where I was at 8.20 a.m. on September 11th, 2001. I remember my brother calling me. I remember turning the TV on and going, everything has changed, and it did. Mm. Um, so uh, these moments happen, and there's a kind of absolute, that's kind of what I was getting at in my talk the other day, is that there is a sense in which no matter how much we feel like we figured out the world as it's been behaving so far, what we, what we see when we turn to face the future, be it only the next you know, microsecond, is incentive, plunges us back into fantasy. And that's kind of what Zhezky inhabits that space of absolute uncertainty, but also absolute faith that whatever happens next will make sense, mm. will fit into some kind of strangely transcendent aesthetic patterning that the world is. Like, it's just starting to sound a little, maybe a little new agey, but um, it's, to me, it's either that or we're in the Lovecraftian cosmic horror where the next moment will just undo us and that'll be the end of it. Right. So uh, it kind of puts us into that kind of a Kierkegaardian position where we have to like leap into trust or basically face an unknowing that can be quite unnerving, I think. It's like a dance of horror and fantasy that's constantly <laughs> happening in our lives, I feel, anyways. So can I ask you a question uh, about the role of judgment, which I feel like maybe is in tension with this idea of generosity in response to the unexpected and the new. But you know, I go back to thinking about Frank Silva and Bob, 
and like for those of you who have seen Twin Peaks, like it wasn't just any old guy that no. went into the shot and they were like, ah, yeah. what if, you know, yeah. Frank Silva was a special dude yes. in terms of like the way he his looked. Look, yeah. yeah, his look, you know, it, 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 there was a, a both a sort of generosity or a trust, but also a judgment, a judgment in picking yeah. that opportunity and following it in that direction yeah. and saying, no to other possible sort of aleatory events or other things that might have opened up pathways yeah. that were not pursued. It's not, it's, I'm sure it wasn't the first time that David Lynch saw some someone <laughs> that didn't belong in a shot in, in like, you know, and it, but it was the first time that he's like, I'm casting that man in the show. So yeah, judgment becomes, but what's a judgment predicated on? Would David Lynch be able to explain his judgment? I, I remember I have a friend who's a very kind of left hemisphere dude very, very rational. In French, we say Cartesian, Cartesian person. And uh, he, I once asked him, uh, he'd moved to Australia and he met the, the woman who would later become his wife and he was very happy and in love. And I said, um, I asked him how it was going with uh, his, his girlfriend and he wrote me back saying, it's going so well. And then he said, I love her for one, her hair <laughs> to her gentle uh, disposition, I think it was, and then three, her sense of humor. And I'm like, man, he even numbered those things. <laughs> I'm like, lucky her, she had like three out of three. Like, what if, you know. What if the hair wasn't what if, what, if she, yeah. what if the hair, what if she got a haircut? Would you still love her? <laughs> you know, so it was like, where does judgment come from? Mm, where mm. did David Lynch make? I think judgment ultimately has kind of, it, it throws us into a moral Absolutely. zone. A moral zone that you can't simply translate into some technic language, mm -hmm. which would give you, uh, you know, oh, well, obviously anyone in David, David Lynch's position would have cast, you know, Frank Silva, right. you know? Right. Uh, it's not, judgment is, there's a mystery in judgment. Yeah, when you see moral, that might raise some hackles, but I think you're meaning it in a specific and technical sense, which is not well, just yeah. what can be, but what should be. Yeah, well, yeah, and, that's what and I mean. That's, Judgment is like, should Frank Silva be in the shot? Right. Should yeah. this A flat be, should I just sort of embarrassedly try to hide it away in a flurry of notes, like over, you know, or should I actually choose yeah. this? And that is a moment of judgment where you are moving into what ought to be. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. What, what is, the way we put it colloquially is what is meant to be. Right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Uh, meant to be suggests that there was a plan, but we know there wasn't a plan. So it's like, well, now that this has accidentally happened, it always had to be. That's the feeling of like, of uh, that's the feeling of, of finding or deciding upon the next move, right? And chance moments of chance can have that um, can have that quality, but chance can also have moments where I mean, there are moments of chance where you get like a phone call from the police at 2.30 in the morning and through some chance, somebody close to you is, I don't know, car, died in a car wreck. And all of a sudden, that's a different kind of mistake, right, or accident. There's also, and this is a point that Jetsky makes, uh, a tragic dimension as well. Chance and possibility or potentiality wear different faces. There's mm. the face of like, honor thy mistake as a hidden intention, like, oh, I didn't know that this is what I wanted, but this is what I wanted all along, which might correspond with the mood of um, providence, or we might say fate. 
But then when I talk about the phone call from the cops at 2.30 in the morning, the sudden, like, awful mischance, like, I suddenly keel over dead from a heart attack right now before you. It's possible. Could happen. Um, in such moments, at least affectively, you might feel like that's the grinning death's head of randomness. Yeah. Where, you know, we have this tissue of meanings that we carefully construct, these regularities in our experience, which include things like the regularities of having electric lights that work and seats to, to sit in and so on. But, the, but there is the, that wild card that, as I say, the death said that reminds you, it's like, this is just a chaos. Yes. This is a thin screen of order that we are projecting over roiling, Lovecraftian mm -hmm. chaos. That's a different face of, ch of chance. That's the face of... Uh, randomness, and then of course there's the third. I've got this whole theory of chance that is actually a triune goddess, Fortuna, and the other face is Lady Luck, right? Who can be wooed? Ask any gambler. Yeah. You know, with you know wearing your lucky underpants or whatever to to, to That's yeah, a new... hand of cards. Yeah. I am wearing my lucky underpants. <laughs> <laughs> it's the moment where um, there are two two cinematic moments that kind of illustrate that third aspect of chance, uh, Lady Luck, is uh, from Star Wars. You're, I think it's in Empire Strikes Back when uh, Han Solo has to like pilot the Millennium Falcon into an asteroid field, and C-3PO starts telling him what the, like, the chances of surviving this, you know, and then he just says, never tell me the odds, and then he goes in. So that's the first thing. So that's what a gambler says, because the odds don't matter. As mm. I've said elsewhere, you know, the chances of getting struck by lightning are one in, I don't know, how many hundreds of thousands, or let's say one in a million, the chances of being one in a million are 50-50. You know, like, there's like, with it, without the, the it doesn't, to the person who feels that the win will happen, the odds cease to exist. It's simply a, a coin toss. And so um, the, uh, the other example is in Stranger Things, where uh, Winona Ryder's character, I forget the character's name, her son is Joyce missing. Joyce Byers. Joyce Byers, right. She goes to, the, to, to see the, the sheriff, and mm. she's describing how her son has disappeared, and he's trying to comfort her, and he's like, 99, <laughs> 99 times out of 100, the child is with a relative, uh, and everything's fine, so you, and she's like, what about the one? You know, the one time. You know, that's the only one that matters to a mother whose child is missing. Uh, so this is where things get really weird with luck because you could apply it also to, to Frank Silva popping up, you know, in, in that shot and David Lynch deciding to, ca deciding to cast him because what were the chances that that mistake happened? And yet if it, that hadn't happened, Twin Peaks wouldn't have happened. Mm. So it's just, well, I don't know, maybe you have more to say on luck and how luck fits into this. Well, I guess I just keep thinking about like, all right, when we talk about like 9-11 is a pretty loaded example of how like the unexpected or like how we move from this moment right here to the next moment. Um, but the kinds of forces we're talking about, including, the, you know, these different faces that chance might, uh, these faces that chance might wear, or whether we're talking about potential and talking about how we can move from the actual to the potential. Mm. Um, these interventions can happen on a micro scale. They can, it doesn't have to be big and outsized and dramatic. And one thing I feel that uh, I feel a certain obligation to do is to, to, to trace this back to where we started, which is Wissenskunst, which is thinking about a way of knowing. Mm. Like how we know, 
not just how we know, like how I'm going to construct a research project, but the sort of, um, to use a, a word, I forget who coined this word, lifesmanship, the lifesmanship of being a working scholar, being a working scientist or social scientist or humanities person or artist, um, the how-to, the method, but we're not really talking about a method, but we're talking about these forces that are unavoidably in every life and therefore in every research project and everything that you are doing in the lab or what, or what not, uh, in, in your office, wherever you're doing your work. Um, and so where I feel it's, it might be health on here, I feel out of my depth because I'm not a scientist, but you are. <laughs> so I, I would ask you, like, do you have reflections on how in just ordinary, quotidian, daily work as a scholar, such forces come into play in a, in a kind of mundane way, in an mm, everyday way. Mm, mm. I mean, I, I think I would go back to this point I made earlier about there being a practice that you can, I mean, it's the sort of sense of making your own luck in a fashion. Yeah. And I think it has to do with you know, if you think about this interface between the actual and the possible, and the ways in which things in the act and the possible can sort of spill into the actual, there are cases like 9/11 or cases like the the car crash or the sudden heart attack that, from you know our perspective, we have very little to do with having you know, made that crack between the possible and the actual and those particular contents spilling into it. Um, there are ways in which we individually and we collectively have positioned the actual relative to certain parts of the possible so that some contents are more or less likely to spill in. And I think this once again, and then there are cases where we actually have causal power to sort of invite certain things from the possible. I mean, in fact, this is literally what we do constantly because every action we're doing and everything we say is a way of realizing some things that are possible and then become, mm. become actual. But, you know, I think there are, I think that brings up questions of judgment on the one hand because out of the space of possible things, there are some that we feel should be and some we feel shouldn't be. And uh, so there is a sort of profoundly moral act in everything we say and do, including everything we say and do as, as scientists or scholars. But to come back to your question, Phil, I think there's a practice of positioning yourself um, relative to the possible and engaging in this very special human capacity of you know exploring the possible without leaving the actual yeah. you know where we can kind of projectively or imagine imaginatively or imaginally enter that possible realm and look around sort of see see what's there and uh, you know I think my practice as a scientist involves try, a, a practice of trying to kind of create my own luck in terms of the kinds of things I read, the kinds of things I listen to, like a certain wonderful podcast uh, <laughs> that has been a tremendous source of inspiration and ideas for me, um, uh, and also weird studies. Um, no, <laughs> uh, you know, the, the, the people I talk to, all of those are ways of positioning yourself in a certain orientation to what's possible 
so that you are making your own luck in the sense that like, what makes you a lucky scientist? Um, you know, it's finding things that blow your mind, finding things that blow other people's minds, finding things that allow us to change the world for the better. And, you know, I think one of the lessons for any listeners and certainly the folks out in the audience uh, is that you're always in a tension between what the discipline says, what, you know, the Wissenschaft that you happen to be part of wants you to do and expects you to do, but that's not the way that you change the world and that's not the way you blow your mind. So you have to engage in this sort of constant dance, again, uh, between, you know, what's expected and what's expected of you and the ways in which you can contact the unexpected and let in those sort of Felix culpas, those sort of yeah. lucky accidents that um, make all the difference. Well, I mean, I think one other word to bring into this conversation is creativity. Mm. Uh, another aspect of the possible becoming actual um, of uh, the uh, present m moment. Well, it's always the present moment, isn't it? I mean, the, I mean it was. <laughs> <laughs> it's never just the present moment. But, but you know, the... Um, and this is a question that's like, how, how, how do we be creative? Well, it's kind of a hard question, isn't it? And there's any number of books on how to be creative and somehow they never satisfy. One. <laughs> but there's a, there's a sort of feeling of like creativity is not a, uh, it's not a cake mix. There's not a linear um, formula in which respect, I'm thinking of something that's sometimes attributed to a Zen Roshi, Richard Baker Roshi from the San Francisco Zen Center, but I've heard it quoted um, or attributed to many people, um, talking about awakening in the Zen tradition, uh, Satori Kensho. Um, that is an example of something else that is nonlinear. Uh, you can't just say, I'm going to sit 100,000 hours of Zazen or Whatever. Or, or what, what was 10, Mal Malcolm Gladwell said? Oh, it's 10,000. 10, yes. That should do it. Yeah, that, that <laughs> ought to do it. Uh, <laughs> it might or might not. It doesn't seem, it, it, you know, stuff like that doesn't really seem to be to correspond to anything you want to do. And in fact, for reasons I don't need to get into, um, what you want to do, your little intentions and designs and so on, might in fact be the very thing that are keeping you from like mm. opening your eyes. And so one thing that uh, Richard Baker Roshi is quoted as saying is that awakening is an accident. Zazen makes you, or Zen meditation makes you accident prone. <laughs> right. Creativity, yeah. creativity is an accident. So the question I would say is what is it that makes you accident prone? So earlier this week, I did a little impromptu workshop on the I Ching, which is an ancient, like originally Bronze Age, uh, Chinese book of uh, bibliomancy. It's a book that you um, can throw coins or divide yarrow stocks to arrive at a series of numbers that allow you to consult a hexagram that is indexed to several verses, some of them of extreme antiquity, and many of them very puzzling and opaque, and that can allow you to arrive at an insight into the question you wish to ask. Um, that's a kind of bank shot, nonlinear, <laughs> sort of like crazy wisdom sort of way of somehow arriving at something that you, your limited idea of what you want and what is important for you um, is, is something that is outside that frame of that. Actually, we've already mentioned Twin Peaks, so there's also the third or second 
think uh, episode of the first season, mm. Zen or to Catch a Killer, yeah, uh, which has nothing whatsoever to do with Zen, um, where Cooper, the the FBI detective who's been dispatched to the small Oregon town to solve a murder. Uh, gets all of his new friends from the Twin Peaks Sheriff's Department together, and he has a pile of rocks. And he has a bottle set up on a on a on a bucket, and his method. And he has a chalkboard with the names of all the suspects. And he has somebody hand him a rock, so has someone else name a suspect, and then he wings a shot. And he tries to see how close he can come to hitting the bottle. Yeah. And it's this totally intuitive thing. And I like to think that he just made that system of divination up on the spot. But it actually ends up, uh, it doesn't actually give him the name of the killer, but it gives him the name of the next person that he needs to talk to in order yeah. to find the killer. Perfect example of, it's the wrong note. Like it's, it's, <laughs> yeah, he right. doesn't get the killer, yeah. but he, he moves on to the next bit. It makes him accident prone. The, the story can move from there. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Makes him accident prone. Yeah, I like that. Um, I really loved your barrier, breaking, uh, deconstructing the barrier of meaning, mm. that talk you gave. And Thank you. it ends with... I don't know. It ends in a really interesting place uh, because what you're saying at the end is that somehow, um, please correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, for the first thing that I find really interesting is your whole thing about, uh, well, this is the Rhoda essay or, or how uh, we tend to think when we're designing machine learning, you know, engines, <laughs> whatever, systems, models, uh, models. Uh, when you design these things, you tend to... to predicate them on language, but you're saying there's language is just a way of supercharging ostension and inference, mm. which are just more like natural or like pre-linguistic anyways, modes of, of, of knowing and communicating. And then uh, what, what ultimately happens with humans is that humans can access the possible. Can you explain that properly? So that yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so uh, this Rota essay that um, JF is mentioning uh, is this uh, piece from a book called Indiscreet Thoughts, which is like a joke because it's like indiscreet, like discreet mathematics, but also indiscreet because they're kind of eh, not necessarily the things people always write about. Roto is a, a brilliant um, mathematician who later in his life became quite a serious philosopher and a member of the philosophy department at MIT somewhat over the objections of most of the people in the philosophy department at MIT, um, but that's neither here nor there. Um, and this barrier of meaning essay um, is a, an account of a conversation he had with a uh, mathematician named Stan Ulam, who among other things, an interesting connection because of the role of the atom bomb in Twin Peaks mythos and the, the history of weird studies and so on, Ulam was among the designers of the hydrogen bomb, um, but uh, he is a fascinating figure who partially because of um, basically uh, a devastating brain injury that he suffered uh, in the mid 40s, um, was known for communicating very gnomically and cryptically. So he would sort of uh, utter these kind of highly compressed pronouncements, which crystallized a ton of insight. And then the places where he worked would like have these assistants whose job was basically to help like figure out what this incredible, I mean, Rota uses the word prophetic kind of enigma that Ulam produced meant. And so in this essay, he talks about AI and the way in which we have this profound 
confusion about what it is when we do things like C. And uh, Ulam makes the argument that, you know, we think we're seeing objects. We think we're seeing like this microphone as a kind of bunch of legs and a, some poofy thing and whatever. But in fact, when humans engage in those acts of perception, they're always seeing them as something else. They're seeing them as uh, what he calls a function in a slightly confusing way because he doesn't mean you see it only as the normal function of the microphone, but you see it as whatever it is that it's doing or could be doing. Um, like a prop on a stage. Like a prop, right. A, on a theater stage. On a theater stage, which right. could be doing all sorts of different yeah. things. And um, the way that this connects to this idea of ostension and inference is that there's an old idea that very much the sort of large language model approach to AI uh, takes seriously. I would say it's a sort of deformation professionnelle um, in the sense that people who spend a lot of time using and thinking about language think language is it. But um, folks who approach language from a more situated, embodied, evolutionary perspective say that what makes language possible and powerful, and the people who make this argument are folks like Dan Sperber, um, Tom Scott Phillips, uh, uh, are essentially not the code, the sort of symbolic system, the things that map symbols to arbitrary meetings and have rules for combining them in different ways, ways, rather what makes it powerful is this capacity for ostension, which is basically to say this thing, whatever it is, it could be the way I'm touching something, it could be the way I'm gesturing, it could be the words coming out of my mouth, this is significant. This is a communicative act. And then inference, which is the process whereby you take this onrushing stream of things that have been marked out as communicative and infer what it is that's going on. And I think that moment of ostension relies on the same human power of seeing as, um, and that that seeing as is what is fundamentally missing from, you know, certainly the large language model way of approaching AI, um, and is also part of uh, what would be necessary to have human-like artificial intelligence that can access the possible, because part of yeah. accessing the possible is that moment of projecting from the actual thing here to the what it could be exactly. or what it should be. And since we always see things in this mode of seeing as, is this a dagger I see before me? You know, like, <laughs> uh, and when you, we are always like almost like in a stereo kind of way seeing the actual mm, and the mm, possible mm -hmm. in the object. So that the Deleuze would say that um, any physical object you look at has a virtual dimension. And the virtual dimension is not less real than the physical object. It is simply the physical object as, as it exists in the ongoing becoming of the world mm. in which it, it functions. It has a function, it has a role, it has, a, it has purpose and value or meaning in a particular context. Like he says, seeing a person as a passenger, right? That's mm -hmm. one of Rota's mm -hmm. examples. So a car passes by and you see a person sitting there and you think of it, oh, there's a passenger. Well, you're not, you're never just seeing a person. You're always seeing a person as what they are, but the as part 
That's like when Macbeth sees, he pulls out his normal dagger, right? And he's looking at the ghost dagger, and it's like Shakespeare showing us he's seeing the actual and the virtual split hmm. for us, so hmm. we can see them like in a crystal. So every physical object is also a prop in a story, in something that's happening. And, a, and, and that happens entirely, it relies completely on the imagination. I don't think that you could do science without that dimension of the imaginal, where science suddenly, something, suddenly becomes something one might put value on. <laughs> Someone might want to do that because it has value in the narrative that is constant, that's so much bigger than uh, the particular experiment you're running or whatever. Mm. So, like, it just seems like you can't subtract the imagination from our experience of reality. Is that something you would agree with? I would totally agree with yeah. it. Let, okay, so. May I ask a, a kind of a twist question related to this notion of the possible and then the impossible? Yeah. So one of the things that I found so interesting about the, this talk you gave um, on genres of reality is the notion that the essence of horror relies in the ability of language to invoke the impossible. Yeah. And that part of the, the, certainly the Lovecraftian move and mood is this kind of just like concatenation of things that summon entities that are literally unimaginable. And yeah. I would say that also means in a, in a real sense, unrealizable. They're, they're, they're not things that exist in this privileged relationship that the possible has with respect to the actual, which is that we can't, we could make it real. Right. And so I'm wondering what you all think about the way in which there's a sort of further danger of predicating not just artificial intelligence, but our you know, reality system on language, oh. which is that language doesn't just give us, it supercharges our access to the possible, but it also gives us this dangerous access to the impossible. Yeah, hence, the, <laughs> which yes, is, yes, that's true. hence the popularity of the Shoggoth term to define <laughs> right. like, what it is that's going on in these models. Oh, beautiful. Yeah. Shoggoth is a, the Shoggoths are creatures the Lovecraft invented that are precisely these amorphous, worse than formless creatures that Lovecraft, uh, I just love the way he ran out of words. Like, I could string a bunch more adjectives here, but I'm just going to say they're worse than formless. <laughs> um, and uh, and the, the so yeah, that is. I think that is a danger. In fact, it's a danger that started way before AI. I would say that's an inherent danger in ideology in general, mm. which is often, I think, rooted on or predicated on contradictions. Uh, and and this is. I have a kind of almost like weird or like. It's, troubling to other people, uh, hatred of contradictory entities. <laughs> um, and, uh, and, but I love horror fiction. I just, to me, it's, it acts as a kind of warning about the dangers of, because if, we if we put all of our eggs in the language basket, we are licensing not just all the possibilities inherent in language, but as you said, all of the impossibilities inherent in language, which suddenly become, if you can string the words together, then it's, it can enter the conversation, and then you end up with, you know, what's Orwell's thing, war is peace, freedom is slavery, um, et cetera, so. Well, as a musician, or some, like, I'm a very verbal musician, but nevertheless, that's where I started off as a musician. I've always been impatient of uh, language imperialism. 
for example, post forms of post-structural thought that insist that everything is constituted in and by language. Um, and uh, you can say like, oh, music is a sort of language, but that's kind of evading, uh, uh, that's an evasion. Um, and, uh, and it's also pr pretty debatable. Language, uh, music doesn't have to be a language in order to be a complex, powerful, meaningful thing. And so maybe this would be an opportunity to loop it back to where we began, which is the performance of the tuning meditation. What was, and perhaps this would be an opportunity for us to transition from doing this conversation to having a conversation with you, which, uh, in other words, perhaps could ask questions. Maybe you, perhaps, perhaps we have delighted you for long enough, um, <laughs> as, Mr. <laughs> as Mr. Bennett says. Um, but uh, one question I might ask is, is the, the experience of doing the tuning meditation. Of course, to answer any question I have about it, you have to use language. But was that a linguistic experience? I don't know. But it was, a, it was certainly a, an experience with some kind of meaning. Um, yeah, I find the point that Jacob raised about the action shaping the likelihood of possible. Um, it sounds to me much like karma and wisdom, you know? I'll repeat the question just so that we can... Uh, so, did you get that? Yeah. Maybe yeah. you should roll it into your answer. So. Oh, I'm not going to try to answer that question. It's a Buddhism question. <laughs> Phil can take that one. The question was this notion of the shape of the actual affecting the possible is reminiscent of the notion of karma, which I agree with, but I'll let... The expert. Yeah, take oh, that. He's our, he's our resident karma expert. Oh God, <laughs> karma is an ex an especially difficult concept. People often take it to mean um, what goes around comes around, which it can mean that. But I often think of it in terms of um, what William James talks about when he's talking about habit as mm. the, as canalization. Um, that you do something one time. You've just done it one time, you do it two times. Already, it's sort of like, you know, when your gutters are clogged and, they, and, and there's this one place where the water always starts to pour over the gutters and after a couple of times it makes a little, uh, a, a little track in the dirt and from then, thenceforth, even if you fix your gutters, um, water is just generally gonna go there and that uh, that little groove is going to get deeper and deeper, and if you kept at it long enough, it would become the Grand Canyon, I suppose. <laughs> uh, and so that's what I mean by canalization, right? And that um, one way of thinking about karma is uh, the uh, canalization from your acts. So if you are habitually, let's say, a very hot-tempered person, um, uh, or let's say you drink a little too much, and um, you get and you're you, know, you get kind of mean when you drink too much. Um, after a while, what that is doing is that is creating an entire set of causes and conditions, interdependent causes and conditions, um, that are being canalized through those acts to the point that, like, at a certain point, we always have this bias. We think I think I'm moving things around at a certain point because the universe, in a, from a Buddhist perspective, is interdependent, the universe is just as equally moving you around. Mm. That's karma. Yeah. So how does that relate to the possible? My tendency would actually be to say that po the possible is, in a sense, the ever 
ever possible end of karma, like almost like this open that breaks with the causal chains that have been established. So, but that doesn't mean like, that doesn't mean that the possible is that. I mean, the possible is just the open. But what tends to happen in our world is that things fall back into the rhythms and and chain and sequences that they've. Thank God, right? Because that's that's, <laughs> that's why we're not floating around the ceiling right now. So, like uh, things tend to fall into sequence, and so. Um, but I think that in every intake of breath, there's this is something a Buddhist would probably agree with, is that at every moment there's a potential for satori, potential for enlightenment at every moment. And in fact, in a sense, the world is already always enlightened in every moment. That's, yeah. that's uh, Dogen. And I, my interpretation of what Dogen means, and I think I could actually draw some like, evidence uh, from the, the uh, Genja Koan for this, is that uh, enlightenment is the acausal. Uh, is that kind of spontaneous suchness of the world. That's a reductive way of putting it, but it's one way, I think, of putting it. So, yeah, you could look at the possible both ways, right? Hmm. What do you think, Jacob? Any thoughts? <sighs> um, I think this question of... I like this idea that what the, the, the possible uh, makes imaginable and literally possible, the interruption right. of, of one thing after another, of habit, of the sort of uh, simplest determinations of cause and effect. And I think the way that that vouchsafing of possibility interacts with practice um, precisely has to do with, you know, the way that we project, or I would say participate in the projection of the actual yeah. into the possible. And yeah, what, what, and I mean, far be it for me to presume to say anything about what enlightenment is, <laughs> but, but, but um, it certainly seems like realizing and uh, accessing that space of possibility, that sort of a fundamentally a causal, because the causal I think is the domain of the actual, is yeah. or, or the actual and its t slight titration with the possible, but uh, that sort of imaginal projection into the possible as such seems to me like a very good. Uh, a good way of defining what you know you might think of as enlightenment, or what you know certain Neoplatonists would think of as like re connection with the one, or or an Aximander, Apiron. Yeah. Yeah. There's all kinds of terms in philosophy for trying to get at this openness. This I mean, it's mm. like kingdom of heaven. You know, yeah. <laughs> that's yeah. kind of what. Um, it's, it's, it's interesting how quickly it, one can find oneself using terms from various religious traditions. And, yeah. that's, and of course, as I said in my talk yesterday, science was born in, the, um, uh, in answering for once and for all the question of whether it can proceed in its projects uh, without reference to God. And its answer, of course, is yes, of course it can. Yeah. And so perhaps um, talking about uh, Buddhism... Um, or any religious tradition feels a little out of place, but 
And people have been thinking about these abstract questions of possibility and, uh, and, and associated questions of free will and, and predetermination for a very long time. Mm. And one another to choose from a different religious tradition, one that I don't belong to, but that nevertheless comes up often in our conversations, Christianity, we might invoke grace. Because yeah. the danger of thinking in too ironbound uh, causal way and thinking about interdependence and causality um, in such a way it's like, well, you're a drunk and you will always be a drunk and that's that. You know, that would be one possible and int wrong interpretation of what I just said, right? Um, is I want to get back to something that Zhevsky himself, not a religious person, the opposite of a religious person, said. He's <laughs> uh, like, anything can happen for any reason at all, at any time. And grace is this idea of like a gift, a completely gratuitous gift. You didn't deserve it. There's nothing you did to get it. For some reason, you've got it. And I can't help but think that when we're talking about creativity, we're talking about the possible becoming actual, we're talking about moving past that membrane that always separates us from whatever's next, whatever it is we want. You know, always the, the, those moments happen, whether it's in a dream or a mistake that somehow is the moment you've been waiting for or whatever, those are little moments of grace. Mm -hmm. yeah. I think that in many cultures, traditional cultures, there's a, you know, I know for sure in India, the, the greeting the sun is a, a practice that's probably almost universal in human cultures to greet the sun in the morning. Um, and, and I know in Egypt that rituals had to be performed to make sure the sun would rise again. There's, a, I think, something as simple as the fact that we can have science at all. In other words, that we have a uniform, not only a uniform, regular, and consistent nature, but a nature that's somehow intelligible to us is already a kind of weirdly, like, strangely a kind of act of grace. Because it, we could have been living, I think there are probably lots of species who live in a universe that to them is quite incomprehensible. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, uh, but we have this weird luck, maybe it's just a matter of lady luck, of being able to say something about the world and maybe even to feel grateful for the way things are, for the fact that the sun rises every day. <laughs> One of Heidegger's many very puzzling utterances, and it's kind of a, it, it rhymes in German, thinking is thanking. Hmm. I've never quite understood that, but I know it's true. <laughs> Thank you. Oh. Uh, so I, I was wondering um, about, I think it was the famous Kalpa, is that what you were describing it? As yeah. Jacob, the sort of happy accident. And I was wondering if you could come back to think a little bit um, more about improvisation and the sort of relationship between being open to versus sort of like openness to versus judgment of those things that are coming towards you and, and happening. And, and I was thinking about um, whether and how it relates to the improvisation tradition of the kind of yes and. Yeah. Hmm. Um, and I just wanted to know if you could kind of a little bit about that, about like recognizing those moments and then you know incorporating versus expanding on versus you know shifting. You know, because I feel like there are a lot of different themes there that can weave together. Yeah, that's a great question, which I think connects very beautifully to the point that Phil was making reading this notion of anything can happen as a moment of grace as opposed, so I think 
I would point to the yes and or the, the kind of generous as opposed to critical response precisely as seeing the fact that anything can happen as not something that should evoke a response of abject horror, <laughs> which it certainly can't. I mean, yeah, the really idea could. that things could suddenly go wild if you just say to someone, well, anything could happen. Is yeah. that a scary thought? <laughs> Or is it also something that offers the possibility of salvation? The fact that, you know, the drunk can get no. out of this, this, you know, terrible place this in which they've been. canalization that they've got themselves wedged in. Exactly. And, you know, I think that, like, Felix Culpa, I mean, is, again, in a, like, Christian context used to refer to, like, the felicitous nature of, you know, the fall of humankind and whatever. And I think that speaks to it ultimately a yes and orientation to like the drama of the universe that, you know, you can see the fact that anything can happen. The fact that, you know, no matter how improbable there is the one in a hundred, the one in a thousand, the one in a billion chance that isn't, you know, the one in a hundred from Stranger Things, which is yeah. the, the response to anything can happen as a moment of horror, but the fact that it can be a moment of grace, a moment of freedom. And I think there are ways, um, as Erica pointed out, of cultivating a disposition and a, ha a habit of responding to those accidents of the world as moments of as possible moments of grace. There, you're right, and it comes down to um, to a decision. I think a personal decision we all have to make as to whether we will trust the world or or doubt it or sus sus suspect it or hold it in or hate it, it. <laughs> or hate it. Right, which is a, a response that you see. Um, and um, I, personally, one of the reasons I think science is so fascinating is because. Um, it seems to, despite its complete rejection of organized religion, and it's sh as it should, uh, it nevertheless finds in the world reasons to trust it. It finds in the universe the trustworthiness that is renewed each time uh, a theory bears out, something happens, a discovery is made. It's that these ridiculous little tiny cosmic maggots that we are, we are somehow able to do what we do in physics and, and biology and to figure out this world, however imperfectly, uh, in a sense that seems completely unjustifiable, <laughs> you know, when you consider what we are. So that in itself, to me, doesn't, it doesn't elicit the kind of like religious response, but it does, I think it does call for something like a spiritual response to to the universe which um yeah I, I just uh it just seems to do that as a matter of course for me yeah and the idea that an anomaly might not be the disappointing result of your theory being wrong it might be an opportunity to learn more about what's really going on which is a beautiful thing when it happens yeah. <laughs> Thank you.
you enjoyed this podcast, consider subscribing to Weird Studies on your favorite podcasting platform. You can also follow us on Twitter, visit the Weird Studies subreddit, and of course, support us on Patreon. Music for the podcast is composed and performed by Pierre-Yves Martel, and the show is made with the assistance of Meredith Michael. Thank you for listening.